0: Hello and welcome to the Pretty Powerful Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Gennari. Today we are speaking with Georgia Supreme Court Justice, Sean Ellen LaGrua. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean. Happy to be here, Angela. So Sean uh, has joined us today um, through a recommendation from a great friend of ours, and I'm just so thrilled that she's taking the time to be here because I know it's not easy to get on your schedule. So I want to make an introduction for, for Justice LaGrua because she's super impressive Sean Ellen LaGrua has been a justice on the Supreme Court of Georgia since January 7th, 2021. Prior to her appointment, Justice LaGrua served as Superior Court Justice in the Atlanta Judicial Circuit. She served as Inspector General for the Georgia Secretary of State, has over 20 years of trial experience serving as Chief Senior Assistant District Attorney in DeKalb and Fulton Counties and Chief Assistant District Attorney in the Tallapoosa Circuit. Additionally, she has served as the Solicitor General for DeKalb County. While on the bench in Fulton County, Justice LaGrua initiated and presided over My Journey Matters, a pilot accountability program designed to divert young offenders from a lifetime of incarceration. In 2016, Justice LeGroux received the St. Thomas More Award from the St. Thomas More Society in recognition of specific actions manifesting a commitment to justice and humanity, especially in difficult circumstances, related in part to her formation of and continued commitment to the My Journey Matters program. She currently serves as the chair of the Chief Justice's COVID-19 Task Force, co-chair of the Judicial Council Standing Committee on Technology, Liaison to the Judicial Workload Assessment Committee, advisor to the Ad Hoc Committee on Judicial Emergency Preparedness Council, member of the Judicial Nominating Committee, and member of the Child Support Commission. Justice LaGrua was recently inducted into the Georgia State University College of Law Order of the Baristas. She is also a master of the Logan E. Beckley Inn of Court and Lamar Inn of Court. She is a founding member and past chair of the Georgia Association of Women Lawyers Judicial Application Review Committee. She is also the past president of the Council of Superior Court Judges. After graduating from the University of Georgia, go dogs! Justice LaGrua (laughs) received her Juris Doctorate from the Georgia State University College of Law. She is married to husband Chris and has two stepsons and two Bernese Mountain Dogs who are rescues. Wow, that is a mouthful. That is so incredibly impressive. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I don't know how you have the time. (laughs) Uh, I'm happy to do it. So I want to just start off by asking, was going into law always your, your path? Did you always know that you wanted to be an attorney and then eventually a Supreme Court justice?
1: I always knew I wanted to be an attorney, probably from the age of four. My dad was a career JAG, which is the Judge Advocate General yeah. part of the Army. So he was an Army lawyer my whole life. So I grew okay. up knowing I wanted to be a lawyer okay. from when I was a little kid. Yeah. Didn't ever think about being a judge of any sort until I went to the Secretary of State's office and was doing sort of admin law more than other things, a little bit of uh, voting law and some other things, but uh-huh. was not in the courtroom. I had been a trial attorney for almost 20 years and I missed the courtroom. Yeah. And that's what led me back to the courtroom, but never thought about it before that. I loved my job too much.
0: Really? Wow, that's amazing. And so you, you are, you know, obviously making incredible um, moves through the justice system and all of the different positions that you've served on, but you started My Journey Matters. So with everything else, what,
1: what led you to start My Journey Matters? And tell me a little bit about that program. You have to go back a few years. When I started yeah. as a prosecutor and I came straight out of law school and became an assistant DA in DeKalb County, the average age of the violent offender, and by violent, I mean armed robberies, serious aggravated assaults, nighttime residential burglaries, the average age of those offenders was probably 20, 21 years old, dropping mm-hmm. out of high school in the 11th grade. Wow fast forward to when I took the bench in Fulton County and the Superior Court bench has the most serious felonies in the state, the average age of the violent offender, and this is mostly anecdotal, but I was there for eleven years, was between 15 and 17 or 18, dropping out of school in the ninth grade. Wow. So if you were to leave here tonight because you stay late to edit and do whatever Mm -hmm. you're gonna do and it's dark, and somebody comes by with a gun, hits you in the head, steals your purse, knocks you down, armed robbery, mm-hmm. um, and they catch him. He's 17 years old. Can I tell you he shouldn't go to jail, or I shouldn't say jail, prison mm-hmm. for 10 years? No. And in Georgia, the minimum mandatory sentence for armed robbery is 10 years, minimum, wow. to the door. And judges have no discretion over that sentencing. So if somebody is pleased guilty or is convicted of armed robbery mm-hmm. is 10 years to the door prison sentence. Wow. Appropriate for what I just described happening to you sure. tonight or any other night. But I started thinking about it. I had been involved in the DUI court in Decab and the um, drug court. And then in Fulton, I was the backup judge for accountability for the mental health accountability court and the drug court. And I started thinking about whether or not that kind of model could work with young violent offenders. Yeah. So I had a number of interns. We researched and searched the country to find a program I could copy because, Mm. let's face it, why recreate the wheel if somebody else is doing it? We couldn't find one. Wow. So we had to start from scratch. Right. And over the 11 years that I presided over it, it had many iterations while we went. Mm. Um, And I'll tell you a little bit about some of those, but essentially... If you qualified initially for the program, the district attorney's office would consider reducing the armed robbery charge to robbery.
0: Okay.
1: Robbery does not have a minimum mandatory, and it's left to the discretion of the judge. So then we could deal with the sentencing aspect. Um, But if you got in the program, you would have to come see me every month. Okay. So prior to COVID, the first Friday of every month, I had a full courtroom of folks that were in the program. They had to come to see me. They had to be enrolled in school. Mm-hmm. They had a curfew. They got drug tested. They had to read every day and write handwritten book reports every month in addition to their schoolwork. They had to bring me their progress reports, their report cards. Um, and we had a check-in mm-hmm. every month. Right. And you didn't. If, if you did well, then we would sentence you and you stay in the program. Over time, we realized that we could put them on the defense bar fell in love with the program for obvious reasons, Right, Um, it was giving defendants a chance that they otherwise wouldn't get. And so defense attorneys started asking me, could they get bond for their client if their client participated in the program before sentencing? Okay. And we realized quickly that that was a great idea because we could put somebody on bond in the program and see how they did. Mm -hmm. They do well,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: they get a sentence reduction and into the program permanently. If they don't, they don't get the sentence reduction and into the program. Okay. So that's sort of the nuts and bolts. Right. Okay. And have you had a
0: lot of success with it? Are the the youth in the program really making a big difference
1: in their lives now? Huge. Really? We'll get we'll get to the downside, but yes, it I have to back up again. There was no staff wow. or funding for this program. It was me, my court staff The public defender that Mm -hmm. loved participating, the district attorney, and probation. But these were all folks with full-time jobs doing this in addition to their full-time jobs. So we are now, we have just recently hired a part-time director, but we don't have specific stats. I can give you a lot of anecdotal, and I can tell you what the social workers and public defenders tell me about the numbers. They say it's more successful than many of the accountability courts. I can tell you that- As late as today, when I was meeting with the officers that I'll tell you about in a minute, I was in touch with, on my personal cell phone, at least six of the participants that have been graduated for some time that are all working and still in touch with me.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Well, and I think a big part of that is that somebody is holding them accountable and that there's an adult who wants to see them succeed and their well-being matters, right? And so, and, and I think that's- probably the biggest disconnect that a lot of the youth offenders are having is that they don't have an adult that is really genuinely trying to
1: help them do well. I think we figured out early on, there were two major components aside from some parenting sometimes missing from these young folks is accountability, as you say, mm-hmm. but also praise. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're, These kids are not expected to accomplish anything, Wow! but they're also not praised when they do accomplish something.
0: That's interesting. Um, So I was having this thought this morning about, you know, what is the difference? Because I'm in the process right now of writing a book and just kind of go back a a little bit. My my background is criminal psychology was what, what my major was in college. So I was... Particularly studying children who were incarcerated. And so I did my internship with the Department of Juvenile Justice and I spent a summer doing psychosocial assessments, meeting with the parents, meeting with the kids, determining their, you know, ability to be released on a ankle monitor. Um, I was on suicide watch for some of them and visiting them pretty frequently, you know, in their, um, in their homes, um, when they were released. So, I got to talk to a lot of these children, um, and and what I have found is they they lacked any sort of um, expectations in their life, and that the hope that things would get better was not there. And when there's no hope, and there's no expectations there's really a, a formula for, well, none of this matters then, right? So it's the hopelessness that you find um, when you're dealing with youth who just are not ha- don't have the structure that they need. So is that similar to what you have found?
1: It is, and I found that over the years. Um, when I was the Solicitor General, and for people that don't know, because lawyers don't know, the Solicitor General is the sort of the district attorney of misdemeanors for counties that have a District attorney and a solicitor. Okay. So, the solicitor general is the elected official that prosecutes things like DUI, disorderly conduct, possession of marijuana, less than out, sentence cases that carry a sentence of less than 12 months. Okay. They're also, um, truancy is mm. also can be charged. And we started the first parental accountability court in, in DeKalb County when I was the solicitor. And what that was was holding parents whose young children did not go to school mm-hmm. responsible for them not going to school. I think when you hit the teens and high school age, that becomes more difficult. Right. But you would be shocked at the number of sixth grade and under students that are missing literally months of school. Wow. So we started looking back when we did this to September to the first of December. And we literally had to take children and families where the children were missing 25, 30 days of school in the first two and a half months. And that was only a a teeny percentage. The interesting thing we found by getting the parents in, I'll never forget one, the young man was never in school on time. And I asked mom, why isn't your son in school? Well, after his alarm goes off, he goes back to sleep. Well, where are you? Well, I was asleep. (laughs) And I just kind of looked. Right. But what we found out, and as I recall, we only put one mother in jail, and it was Mm. only for a day or so to bring home a point, that when you got these families back together and got these kids in school, they did better. Part of the problem was when they fall so far behind,
0: they Mm. don't want to go to
1: school because they don't understand what's going on. They're not keeping up with the rest. And I think this is true throughout the criminal justice system, sure. that we are not instilling old-time values in our young folks as they grew up. You and I, when mm-hmm. we were in high school, we didn't think about whether we were going to go to school the next day. Right. That wasn't an option. Right. That was just what was going to happen. Right. That's not always true anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So, um, you know, I think about the the parents, and there were so many times when I was doing the the psychosocial assessments of the parents as well. And, you know, just the lack of empathy for what their children are going through was was astonishing to me. And their, their disregard, they detach themselves from the actions of their child. And, uh, you know, knowing that there's a direct correlation with what's going on at home and how the kids are, you know, because once the child leaves their house, now they're impacted by the peer pressure at school. Right. So if they're not keeping up academically or they, they don't fit in because, you know, their clothes are not clean or, you know, there's issues at home it's really hard for somebody to go to school and feel like they can fit in there. And so they just don't want to go right. They, they feel ostracized. So it's, it's a huge problem. So well, I applaud you for doing something about it because, you know, not enough is done at the early ages to really prepare kids to get a different way out, you know, to find that other Avenue. So Tell me a little bit more about your path through the justice system. So, as you get out of college, there's so many positions in here um, that that I've I've mentioned in your bio, where there are elected positions. Is this just something you strived for, or you just really wanted to make a difference? And because it just seems like everything that you did, there, it's really um, impactful.
1: I loved being an assistant DA. Really? I, I mean, absolutely loved it. It was – trying cases was so much fun. It was a place I was comfortable. I loved the courtroom. Yeah. It's not a job for everybody because you have to have a different sense of humor. You're dealing – at least in the counties I worked in, DeKalb and Fulton primarily, Tallapoosa and around the state a little bit, you're dealing with the worst of the worst criminals. Right. So you're seeing loved ones – that have been killed. Mm -hmm. You're seeing children that have been molested and abused in horrible ways. Mm. Um, But there's a reward to that too. When the little girl comes running into the courtroom to give you a hug when you've been prosecuting her case or the victim's family comes in to love you. Did I do it for these altruistic, non-selfish reasons Probably not. Yeah. It was something I was excited about doing. I loved. My third year of law school, I interned with the Fulton County DA's office. Okay. With um, an incredible prosecutor by the name of Tom Jones. And it was a great opportunity, but I'll never forget, as I said, I'm an Army brat. Yeah. So I didn't go home in college at Thanksgiving because Christmas break was right after. Mm -hmm. And so my parents were in Northern Virginia where my dad was stationed. So I'd go home at Christmas. Okay. I was dating a guy at the time, and so the plan that year, my third year of law school, at Thanksgiving was that I would spend the Wednesday evening through the Thanksgiving holiday with the guy I was dating and his family, right? Which was mm-hmm. very nice for me. Um, and I was in the district attorney's office when Tom, my the prosecutor, came in, and there had been a series of homicides involving the slaying of men. Wow, which was a little unusual for a serial, right? serial criminal. But he came in and he said, the police department, this was about noon, said the police department just called. They've got an arrest warrant. They've identified the guy they think did this. They've got an arrest warrant and a search warrant. Do you want to go? Wow. I picked up the phone and I called the guy I was dating. I said, uh, I don't know when I'm going to be home. Don't wait for me. I'll let you know sometime later. And hung up the phone and off we went.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and never looked back. It was just fun. Right. Um, right. And never... Thought about any elected position until I was, and and I had a great experience. I went from DeKalb Mm -hmm. to the State Prosecuting Attorneys Council, which had a drug unit at the time, but it became more of a condemnation unit, which was more civil, Mm -hmm. and I didn't love it, so I ended up back in Fulton. Mm -hmm, Had a a really good time in Fulton and ended up prosecuting a lot of, I got thrown into some public corruption. Oh, interesting. Prosecuted um, a pretty large... Uh, case involving police officers that had killed a man, two police officers killed a man, and they had, uh, robbed and burglarized a bunch of strip clubs. And wow. I was prosecuting that case. It was back when Court TV didn't have different stations and reporters, so it was the only one, a gavel to gavel. Mm. And that kind of threw me into corruption. And I was in Fulton County for 10 years. Then I went out to Tallapoosa to be the chief assistant. Okay. And it was a different kind of prosecution. There's no reason to go in there. But J. Tom Morgan was then the district attorney of DeKalb County. And he, right about this time, I don't know, you may remember, the sheriff in DeKalb County had lost the election Mm -hmm. to someone else. Yep. And he thought, and this was Sidney Dorsey was the one who lost. Yep. He thought if he murdered the incoming sheriff, he'd get his job back. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um... This happened right before um, the holiday. And Jay Tom, the DA, came to me when I was in Tallapoosa and said, will you come back to the DeCab DA's office? Mm. And I said, if I can work on the sheriff assassination case. And his response was, well, if you can get your job done in the courtroom during the day and you have extra time, you can. Wow. Not thinking I would find <laughs> the extra time. So right. I spent my days in the courtroom and my night at the police department working on this case, which ultimately... We were able to solve and convict. It was a yeah. change of venue, which most prosecutors don't get to do. I spent the okay. summer in all Oh, wow. Um, trying the case. Uh, I tell you that for this. J. Tom decided to step down at the end of this case because it had kind of been the career high. Sure. And we didn't know who the new DA was going to be, the elected DA, and I didn't know if I had to have a job. Mm. The then Solicitor General we knew was going to run for the DA's position. Mm -hmm. So at lunch one day, my trial partner and my investigator were joking around, what are we going to do? We're going to need a job. Right. And somebody goes, well, the solicitor's leaving. You could be the solicitor. And my trial partner goes, and I could be the chief assistant. And my investigator goes, and I could be the chief investigator. And it it was a
0: joke. (laughs) That's awesome. It was a
1: joke. Right, right. They quickly got legs. Wow. And I was fortunate enough to be appointed to that, which was the first elected position I had. Sure. Well, then two and a half years later, the citizens of DeKalb County fired me. Mm. They did not reelect me. Okay. So I needed a job. Right. And I was asked to go to the Secretary of State's office and oversee their investigative division Which was a great opportunity. I got to work with the governor and Mm -hmm. was in the Capitol. But after a couple of years, I realized, with the exception of election law, it was administrative. Yeah. That's how I got back to Fulton County as a judge. Because that was the, I never thought about applying to be a judge until about eight months before I did it. Wow. Never thought about it.
0: Wow. Okay. Because usually, if somebody goes down the, the route of law, there's usually an end game of either an elected position, judge, or politics, right?
1: Sometimes. Yeah. I I think, and you alluded to this in some of the questions that we discussed, but I think way too often people are wanting to jump ahead when they're happy, and I kind of don't get that. Yeah. I never wanted to leave a job that I loved, with the exception of being a Fulton County Superior Court judge, and there's a reason for that. But as long as I was loving what I did, I wasn't looking to go anywhere else. Yeah. I went to law school with folks that are, you know, when I was an Assistant Day or DA or driving fancy cars and going to fancy restaurants, and I'd run into them and they'd be like, you look so happy. Yeah. You don't look any different. I'm like, that's because I get up every day and go to work and love it. Yes. You know, I'm not going to work on a Saturday because some partner in a law firm (sighs) wants to see my pretty face at 7.30 in the morning. (laughs) If I'm working on a Saturday, I'm working because I want to do it to do my job. Right. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I never thought about it. Right. But when I was at the Secretary of State's office, I wanted to be back in the courtroom. And candidly, Mm -hmm. I had tried just about every kind of case, corruption, death penalty. And there wasn't really a DA's office at the time that was the right fit for me. So when there was an opening, I applied, thanks to a lot of stars aligning and having met people over the years. And um, I was lucky enough to get appointed. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, So
0: how hard is it as a judge who is elected – to do your job knowing that there's constituents who may not elect you again. Like, I, I can't imagine what that feels like. And and I've never been in a position like that, so I couldn't even speak to it. But is there a thought of how do you serve the public when sometimes the decisions you have to make might go against what they want? And, you know, with DeKalb County and... Corruption, and you know, there's there's a legacy there that um, has been troubled in the past. So, what does that feel like? And I, and again, I can't even imagine.
1: Well, before I before I became an elected, when I tried that dirty cop case in yeah. Atlanta, it was yeah. a Zone Three case. I couldn't work in Zone Three. The, the police officers there, I, I couldn't call on them if I had a problem.
0: Yeah, wow. My
1: investigator and I were out with a witness that we lost. People were approaching our car. We were down off um, what used to be Stewart Avenue is now Metropolitan Parkway. Yeah. And we realized we couldn't call the police because when they found out it was me, they weren't going to come. Wow. Um, As I got to know the officers after that, they realized that I was really Mm pro-law enforcement, except when they did something really bad. Right. And that hurts all of them. Right. And the elected thing, I've always said this. I truly believe this. I'm going to do what I think is right. If right. it helps me politically, great. Yes. If it doesn't and I can temper how it hurts me, I will try. But if the choice is what helps me politically or what is right, it's going to be what is right. Yeah. That's my dad and my mom.
0: That's awesome. Well, the integrity, you know, that that's wonderful. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, because I imagine that that's something that anyone in elected position faces, you know, on a regular basis when you have to make decisions, is this decision going to help my constituents or is it the right thing to do? And sometimes you can't explain everything, can you? Because sometimes, you know, like you know it's the right thing, but there's no way to really properly
1: explain it to the constituents because they almost have to to be in your shoes to understand it. You have to have a barometer sometimes. I'll never forget when I became solicitor. My very first boss, who Mm -hmm. I loved to death, came to me with a case that was a difficult one. And he wanted me to be creative in a sentence Mm
0: -hmm. for his guy. Yeah.
1: And that was, I think, on a Monday. And I said I'd get back to him. Yeah. And I thought about it. And I thought about it. And I thought about it. And Thursday night, Friday morning, in the middle of the night, I realized that the only reason I was thinking about it was because – the person I loved and respected the most was asking me, and I realized that was not the reason to do it. And I called him that morning wow. and said, "Bob, I'm sorry, I can't do this. You taught me better." Oh, that's amazing! Good. And for told you. him why I was why I had even been thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, good for you.
0: That's hard. Um, yeah, I imagine it's a very hard thing to do. So. As you're growing through your 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 journey, what challenges and obstacles do you think you have faced that have been especially trying, given being a woman or just coming up through wanting to do the right thing? What has been your biggest accomplishment through that in terms of overcoming obstacles?
1: You know, I hate to date myself, but I started in the legal community when it was still the boys' club.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Um in some ways, that could be difficult. Sure. In other ways, it was kind of fun. Um, I'll never forget being the attorney assigned to the courtroom, and I'd go down there in the morning for whatever calendar. Mm-hmm. I'd be sitting at the table, and some attorney would walk up and go, is there going to be an assistant DA here? And I'd be like, I'm sure there is. <laughs> Wouldn't say anything. And then when the judge came on the bench, uh-huh. and he called me on me to call the calendar, I just went up and called the calendar and thought, hmm, okay. Or the people that would say, well, where do you work in the DA's office? Do you, is your filing stuff interesting? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not filing something. I'm not. I'm not the assistant. Right, um, right. Now, with that said, don't that comes out as if there's something not great about being the assistant. Sure. The the, the clerical staff run offices.
0: Oh yeah, and mm-hmm.
1: they deserve the bulk of the credit for everything that goes on. Absolutely. Um, I agree. But it is kind of fun to deal with the men that just want to underestimate you from day one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I deal with a good share of that myself in the security industry. I am sure. <laughs> so I, uh, I think it's funny though. And, um, most of the time they, they don't assume that I'm the one in charge. You know, they, I, one of the best ones is, so is this your husband's company? <laughs> I love those, those comments. <laughs> Not quite, yeah, so.
1: Thankfully, my parents always told me I could do anything. And actually, I won my very first legal battle in the sixth grade.
0: Mm, Wow. (laughs) And it it
1: sort of rolls into what you're saying. Uh I started a new middle school, Mm -hmm. and the policy was that boys could wear shorts to school and girls couldn't.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: And I didn't think that was fair. Right. And this is back in the day when you used to be able to write the TV station and they'd have a segment on called Your Opinion or Your Viewpoint. Or- uh uh-huh. So we were in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and I wrote the local Louisville TV station. Yeah. And they actually put me on. Wow. And I made my case for why it wasn't fair and it was discriminatory. Mm-hmm. And I got the policy changed. Wow.
0: Good yeah, boys
1: couldn't wear shorts to school anymore. <laughs>
0: I love it. That's awesome. All right. Well, good for you. Um, All right. So tell me who inspires you?
1: Now? Yeah. Ever? Both. My dad and my parents. Yeah. Um, My dad, Italian Catholic Army Colonel. Yeah. Dating was quite a challenge in high school. Um, My mom, who always supported him and supported us. I tell people that my parents gave me the tools to do the right thing. If I choose not to use them, it's on me, not them. Yep. Inspires me, my my first boss, Bob Wilson, and my fr- the guy I interned with, Tom Jones. Yeah. And there's a lot of women that inspire me, the ones that help women. Yes. hmm I agree. Um, unfortunately, women can be their own worst enemies, and they don't help each other in- That's a travesty when it happens.
0: Yeah, we've talked about that a lot on the show because, um, you know, I I find that depending on the generation, um, I find that some of the older generations, they have had to fight so hard to get where they are um, in an executive level that they're not necessarily reaching their hand down and pulling the next woman up. Right, because there's still a little bit of cutthroatness where they are. Um, whereas I find that in kind of more younger generations, they they do tend to support each other a little bit more. But there's a cattiness and a competitiveness that I find it just sets us back so much. And women supporting women is one of the best things that I think has come, you know, through over the past few years that I've noticed the most. So.
1: Well, the, uh, what I was the the other group that I was going to tell you inspires me are the young men and women, but women in particular, mm-hmm. that are working hard, that I can still help. So many people helped to get me where I am. Mm-hmm. That And people say all the time, because I've had a, a, a wonderful career, why do you still say, stay engaged? And when I say politics, I'm not talking about Republican, Democrat politics. I'm talking about sure. just keeping in touch with the people in the world that can help other people. Yeah. And my my response is because so many people help me, if I don't stay engaged, I can't help
0: mm-hmm. the younger
1: women and men that are coming up.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, what, what you're doing with My Journey Matters is really impactful. you know. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to inspire so many people who, f- you know, hopefully will look back and, and help others along the way as well. So I think that's something that I'm – I'm envisioning will happen with
1: that. I hope. Um, you asked about my greatest accomplishment. I think I would have to say the My Journey Matters program, hands yeah. down. I think of those participants as my kids. I call them yeah. my kids. Um, and there there was one part of that program I didn't tell you about that I that I wanted to. About four and a half, five years ago, mm-hmm. pre-COVID, okay, um, then Deputy Chief Erica Shields of the okay. Atlanta Police Department. Yeah engaged with the My Journey Matters program okay. through Leadership Atlanta and she came became very interested and she got a federal grant and got to assign three full-time police officers just to the My Journey Matters program. Wow. And when she became chief, she made it a permanent part of the police department. They are not the gotcha police. Yeah. yeah. They are there to mentor, um, mentor these young people, help mm-hmm. them, make sure they get to school, they visit their families, they go to mm-hmm. birthday parties, baby showers, um all kinds of things and it's amazing to watch the relationship between these at-risk younger folks and defendants and the affection they come to have for these officers. That's amazing. And I if you love could it. imagine the change in narrative across the country, if our challenged or at-risk young people had that kind of relationship with the police department. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I love that so much. So okay. is it still a permanent part? It is. That was my meeting. That's awesome. Our yearly meeting with four of my officers that have been in the program today. Wow. That's fantastic. What great, great. And actually, um, one of my officers, because this is a female directed program sure loretta griffin is an atlanta police officer that's been with me for a long time in the program yeah. is also an army officer or in the reserves wow. and she might be a great person to chat with sometime I'd for love all to have she's her done
0: yeah yeah absolutely and i'd love to talk with her more about her personal experiences in the program because i'm sure she could share so much great information She has funny stories, sad stories, happy stories. Yeah, I love it. Um, So tell me a little bit more. Um, We talk about power on the show, right? And what it means to step into your power, what it means to give away your power. And and I was talking to somebody about this the other day um, because as women, we often give our power away. You know, we we give somebody else credit for something that we've done or we have uh, managed to, you know excuse our way out of anything that would involve accolades, right? Like, ah, it's just not me. It's, you know, it's not, it's not for me. Or we let somebody criticize us or cut us down in a way that just doesn't, it doesn't feel good, but we don't say anything in the moment and we give our power away in that instance as well. So tell me about a time that you've given your power away and then another time that you've stepped back into your power.
1: I don't know about giving my power away. I probably fall sometimes into the category of not wanting the attention sure. or the media. I think the if there's a time I've given my power away or my voice away, mm-hmm. it would have been where I didn't have a choice because I had a supervisor or a boss. Sure. That I didn't have a choice about what I was doing. Yeah. Um, I will say that as having been a manager in some form or fashion for the last, you know, 15 plus years, yeah. My belief as a manager is that you give the credit to the people that work with you and your team, mm-hmm. and you take the blame for anything that goes wrong. If you're the yep, leader, absolutely, I think that's a good leader. Yes, and I don't necessarily think that gives power away. I think that actually empowers the people that are working so hard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. I just think if you're if you're the one in charge, you take the blame for mistakes. Yes. And you give the credit to the people that do the hard work every day.
0: Yep. I agree. I agree. At the end of the day, you know, if something goes wrong in that stadium and and somehow it can fall on me, it's on me. You know, I own that. No matter who, you know, directly was involved, I own it because I taught them. I set the expectations, you know, we we manage. And, uh, you know, if something falls short, it's me. And so I I agree. That's that's something that I think any leader should be doing is taking the blame for anything. that should never filter down to the team. Um, So what advice would you give to 18-year-old you?
1: 18-year-old me. Um, I thought about this one a lot. I think there's two big ones. Okay. One would be do what you love. Find something you Mm -hmm. love to do. Life is way too short. And if some people don't have a choice about being miserable every day because they have to get a paycheck and they have to have a job and there are no choices. Mm. But if you have a choice... Right. and you're in a job or a profession you don't like, find something else. Yeah, I have been so fortunate. I'm not going to say there haven't been times in my jobs. There have been periods where I wasn't as happy. Right. But I literally, I'm not a morning person, so I'm not going to tell you I love to get up. But I, lo- I, when I get up, I love going to my jobs. Yeah. I, I just, I don't dread. And 5 o'clock comes, yep. as Hunter, my assistant here, will tell you that keeps me going Five o'clock comes way too fast for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, am, I cannot remember yeah. the t- last time I looked at the clock and said, do I ever get to get out of here? Right. Right. The other thing, and I think we find this out as we get a little older, but I don't think people told me this as much. The other two things would be you never know where you're going to see somebody again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you may interact with them. And I have so many stories about that that I won't get into. But when I interviewed to be the Solicitor General, Sure, It was a gubernatorial appointment, mm-hmm. but I never met the governor before I got the appointment. I, I may have met him in passing at some event, but sure. I, I didn't interview with him. I interviewed with his legal counsel, a gentleman by the name of Harold P. Melton,
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay, who was his counsel at the time. Harold P. Melton just stepped down as the chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court wow. and was my first chief when I took the job. Um, and wow. he was a young lawyer when I met him. Hmm. The last thing I would say is, and I've sort of taken this on as a little bit of a mantra, Luke Bryan has a song. I'm, yeah. Um, I like all kinds of music almost. Sure. I'm not sure I love bluegrass right. all the time, but <laughs> I love most kinds of music. Luke Bryan has a song called Most People Are Good. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's there's two lines in there that hit home for me. One is that most mothers qualify for sainthood. Yeah. And I think... For a lot of people, that's true. I know my mom does. Yeah. But the other one is that days go slow and years go fast. Yes. And I don't think we realize that. Mm-hmm. And we sometimes sacrifice the time we should be spending with the people that are close, closest to us, in particular our family. Yeah. And so I, I hope people find other things in life besides their jobs yeah. and spend time with their families before it's too late for them to spend time with their families.
0: Yeah, that hits home for me this week because I have a friend who just recently passed away. And um, he uh, he's a great man, Army Ranger, very, very distinguished military career, two Purple Hearts, just an outstanding person. And uh, I knew he was sick. And then it just, you know, it just so suddenly he's gone. And just one of those things where it's like, we never got to do this. We never got to talk about that. We said we were going to do this. And all of that came rushing back this week. And it's just this, this mountain of regret that I feel like, you know, you you don't know how long you have with people. So, you know, chase those moments when you can. I,
1: That's, to me, the most important lesson mm-hmm. of all is to find time for the people that really matter to you. We find lots of time for people that are different parts of our life that I don't want to say they don't matter. Sure. Yeah. But we don't always find time for the most important people Mm -hmm. in our lives. Yeah, I agree.
0: Um, So how can we reach out to our youth and, and help them and make them, you know, make them understand that they have a place to go to and, and, not just the youth, but mental health in general, because I, you know, I talk to a lot of people in the, in the law enforcement community on this podcast and it's an ongoing theme. And, you know, my friend who just passed
1: away, there were some mental health issues. And so how, how do we, how do we Reach people well. I will say the Atlanta Police Department has done a pretty good job over the last number of years. They've got it, and I don't know all of the the details, but they have a mental health initiative. Good. Where when they encounter someone with clear mental health issues, there's a diversion mm. to mental health services instead of arrest. Good. And I think that's a huge step. We need more he- mental health services. Part of the problem is, at least from the criminal justice perspective, sure. You can get folks that are mentally ill help. The problem is when they don't take their medication, Mm -hmm. that's when they get back in trouble. And unfortunately, you can only sort of excuse that so often. With My Journey Matters in particular, when I knew I had a young person with mental health issues, we would have a conversation about, look, number one, there's nothing to be embarrassed about because you have mental health challenges. We all have challenges at some point. I said, and I understand sometimes the medication doesn't make you feel good or it makes you not feel the way you want to. Don't just quit taking it. Talk to your doctor or provider. Tell them what's going on Mm -hmm. and let them adjust and tweak the medication. Yeah. And I think in terms of mental health, that's it. I think the media is not always our friend in messaging. Yeah. Um, Messaging from the media is every night there's a shootout. Um, Every night somebody's doing something wrong and we're all so divided. And I really don't think we're that divided. Yeah. Most of my friends, regardless of what their backgrounds are, regardless of what their political views, we believe in most of the same things when you sit down and actually talk about it. Mm -hmm. And the media would have you believe we all hate each other. Right. Of course. Um, And I just don't think that's (laughs) true. And I think that's what we need to convey to some of our young people, that and the fact that guns are not the answer.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's um, it's tough though because I look at I look at like the foster care system, for example, and I think to myself, are they getting the help that they need? Are they getting the resources that they need? You know, when they're being bounced around from house to house, and there's limited social workers to be able to see them and limited a time, and you know, these are children who are dealing with trauma, real trauma, and without the help that they need, I think I read a statistic, something like 80% of all foster children will end up in our criminal justice system at some point. And it's scary. And, you know, I I really want to figure out a way to help that particular segment of our population, because I think that's what I was dealing with mostly when I was, you know, in the juvenile detention center Um, in my internship. There's a huge
1: initiative um, statewide yeah. to help with the foster care system. Is there? Um, there has been a lot of there have been a lot of resources put into it. Mm. Um, and a lot in the more rural areas where the uh, support may not be there, like you have, sure. you know you obviously have a lot more financial support and resources when you're in a large metro area. It's yeah. one of the reasons it took so long to get accountability courts around the state. Really? metro areas, we had them. Mm-hmm. people believed in them. but if there's nowhere for treatment, That's less than an hour away. It's hard to mandate treatment because you've got somebody that's trying to take care of their family. They don't have the resources to get an hour away two or three times a week for treatment. So but that's that piece has gotten better. And there's been an emphasis and our current chief justice has been very engaged in the resources going into foster care.
0: Yeah. Well, that's that's awesome because that's one thing that I would, you know, if I can make an impact somewhere, it's, it's there. Because I think if we want to turn around our criminal justice system, we have to start there. We have to start with our youth who are, you know, dealing with traumatic circumstances, whether it's losing a parent or drug addiction or abuse in the home or whatever the situation is that had them removed in the first place. We need to deal with their mental health and, you know, get them on the right resources and on the right path. And I think that will hopefully alleviate some of uh, what's going on in our criminal justice system because just, you know, youth dealing with everything that they're dealing with. Like I even – even when, you know, bringing it down to as simple as uh, divorce, and not that divorce is simple, but when you have children who go through a divorce at a – you know, between – Let's just say the ages of 10 to 16, those are the ones that I feel deal with it the most the, the most traumatically um, there because they're experiencing hormonal shifts in and, you know, coming up with their own way of viewing the world. And so when there's a divorce or something that happens, I find that those are the ones who take it the hardest. And so if we can just get children the help that they need and stop assuming that children are resilient and they're going to figure it out, you know their brains aren't wired
1: to figure it out. That's what we're here for. So well, I think you're right. <clears throat> well what do you wish more people knew? How lucky we are to be in this country. Yes. Having traveled around the world, we are we are an imperfect society. We're an imperfect government. Mm. But I've had the opportunity to travel around the world. I went to high school in Germany. When I was 12, I got to spend six weeks in Caracas because one of my little girlfriend's father was an exchange student with the military. Yeah. And I re- never, I'll never forget seeing the cardboard houses on the mountain that people lived in. We tear down our country a lot and sometimes forget that while it may not be perfect, it's still the best one in the world. Mm-hmm. We have the right to gripe about our government openly without repercussion. Mm-hmm. We have the right to have our disputes, you know, criminal or civil, decided by a jury of citizens, not by a kangaroo court or a dictator. Right. We have the right to vote. Yeah. I I just, maybe it's because I grew up in a military family. Um, I just, I love this country. Mm -hmm. Um, I get frustrated with it at times, just like everyone else. But I'm not sure I'd want to live where where some people have to live.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I've done a bit of traveling, too, and uh, I did some volunteer work. Um, in South America, wow, and uh, yeah, just you know, if we think, you know, we've got challenges. Yeah, some of the kids I went to, uh, I volunteered at a place to teach English at a school in um, in Bogota, Colombia, and there's a town called Suacha, and Suacha is a very, very impoverished area, and. Same thing, little shacks that people are living in. You know, there's no air conditioning, there's no running water, there's nothing. And they still go to school and they still, you know, show up and play. And, you know, you do your best to give them as much support and guidance as you can. I think sometimes
1: we just take for granted Mm -hmm. the things we have. Yeah, absolutely.
0: 100% agree with you. Well, thank you so much, John. This has been a a delightful conversation. I have really enjoyed it. It's been so insightful, and um, I've so been looking forward to talking with you. Well, thank
1: you so much. It's been fun to talk with you, and as you can tell, I can talk about my journey matters forever. And I could, too.
0: I think what you're doing is extraordinary, and I wish you all the best. And if there's anything I can do at all to help, I would absolutely love to. Well, thank you so much. And um, Happy
1: New Year. Thank you. And, and go Happy dogs. New Year. Go
0: dogs. So thank you so much for joining us on the Pretty Powerful Podcast. You can uh, find more information on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. Please like and subscribe. And you can learn more about Sean LaGrua and her uh, My Journey Matters program on the website as well. So thank you so much. Have an amazing day. Thank you for joining our guests on the Pretty Powerful Podcast. And we hope you've gained new insight and learned from exceptional women. Remember to subscribe or check out this and all episodes on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. Visit us next time. And until then, step into your own power.